Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGuinney, you're on Talk Shoe. It is Friday, December 23rd, 2011. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Tonight I'm going to um, discuss the book of Jonah, and, and much of the surrounding history, so that we understand the book of Jonah in context, among a few other things. That the, um, tomorrow night there will be a program... I will have my regular program, Christianity Saturdays, even though it's Christmas Eve. If I don't get a crowd, that's okay. There's always a podcast, right? Tomorrow night I will be presenting my um, proofs of the identity of the so-called Phoenicians, right? That might be interesting, and that'll fill in a lot of the blanks from the last two weeks from when I discussed um, the Trojans and Romans and the Dorian and Dan and Greeks. Well, the Phoenicians it is the last, but probably the major piece in the puzzle of this early settlement of Europe, the identity of the Proto-Celts, and the, the, um, the dispersion of true Israel. And I hope to do that tomorrow night at 8 o'clock here, Yahweh willing. Tonight it's the book of Jonah. And I will start with 2 Kings chapter 14 from verse 16. And Jehoash slept with his fathers. Jehoash died perhaps around 798 B.C. If we count backwards from what we know of chronology and, and, and the Assyrian records, it, it's difficult to get an accurate count of all of the um, reigns of the kings of Israel because the records are are not always complete, but mostly because they use different methods to calculate the years of the reigns of kings. Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam his son reigned in his stead. And Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah lived after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoash king of Israel, 15 years. And the rest of the acts of Amaziah are they not written in a book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? which, of course, is not exactly the current book of Chronicles, which we have, which was heavily redacted. Now, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and slew him there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain according to the word of Yahweh, God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was, one of, which was of Gath-Hefer. For Yahweh saw the afflictions of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And Yahweh said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash. So Jonah the prophet, the son of Amittai, lived and prophesied before the time of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of the kings of Israel. This is Jeroboam II, the first Jeroboam being the first king of Israel after the divided kingdom in the days of Solomon, right? or in, in the days right after Solomon, I should say. Jeroboam II was king in Israel for about 40 years, from about 793 B.C. So Jonah definitely prophesied before 753 B.C., and possibly even before 793 B.C., although the text does not require that understanding. It's not certain from the text here in 2 Kings 14. 
But this places Jonah as one of the earliest of all of the prophets of the Bible, from Isaiah to Malachi, of those which can be dated. Some of those prophets cannot be dated. Jonah's hometown was Gath Hefer, according to the Book of Kings, two Kings, or Gath Kefer. And although it's poorly spelled in the King James Version, in Joshua 19.13, we see that it was a town in the land of Zebulun, in Galilee. Therefore, it appears that the Pharisees at the time of Christ were wrong once again, where it says in John 7.52, where they asserted that out of Galilee arises no prophet. It's very clear that Jonah was from Galilee. And with that, we will start with Jonah, with Jonah 1.1. Now the word of Yahweh came unto Jonah, the son of Amate, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them into Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. There was much intercourse through trade across the Mediterranean and the ancient world. Of course, the Jews don't want us to believe that because they want to isolate Israel so that they can hold, so, so that their version of its history will hold up. However, Tyre, Sidon, Joppa, and Dor were all busy ports by this time. Joppa has a place in the Greek myths. It was said to be the place where Perseus rescued Andromeda from a sea monster, a tale which even Josephus repeats. In fact, Josephus said that you could still see the chains that held Andromeda. Ezekiel chapter 27 shows the great amount of trade which occurred at Tyre, the New York of the, the New York of the ancient world, with all certainty. It is telling that the ships of trade in Scripture were often called ships of Tarshish, because in early days, the Iberians of Spain were actually distinguished from the native Tartesians, and the Iberians must have been Hebrew settlers. Tarshish is a region of southern Spain known as Tartessus to the Greeks. Diodorus Siculus, in Book 25 of his Library of History, discusses wars between the Carthaginian Hamilcar Barca and the Iberians and Tartesians in the 3rd century B.C. Yes, the Carthaginians were Hebrews too. However, that doesn't mean that they were allied overseas. Rather, Carthage had conquered Iberia before Rome did, 300 years later. The ships of Tarshish are mentioned in Kings, Chronicles, Psalms, and in several of the prophets. Herodotus is writing about a period much earlier than his own. Herodotus wrote approximately 430, 440 B.C. Herodotus writing about a period which even predates the Trojan War, Speaking of Tartessus in southern Spain says, and I quote, This trading town was in those days a virgin port, unfrequented by the merchants. The Trojan War, being 200 years before King Solomon's ships to Tarshish, Herodotus surely seems to have been accurate, and his calling Tartessus a trading town in 450 B.C., illuminates the scriptural record. In their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott, the famous lexicographers, readily identify Tardesis as the Tarshish of Scripture. Jonah attempted to flee on a ship from the presence of Yahweh. It was a common mistake in the ancient world to associate a god with a certain place, where apparently the gods of a people 
became associated with the land in which that people lived. There's an example of this in Jonah's very time. And I will quote, well, a time not long after Jonah, if not Jonah's very time. It's, it's within 50 to 100 years. And I'll quote from 2 Kings chapter 17. This, um, this occurs after the Assyrians had actually deported many of the Israelites into the land described as um, several river banks in northern Assyria, the Habor being one of them, and, and the cities of the Medes, as the scripture tells us, and as Assyrian records tell us. And after they did that, the Assyrians began to bring in people who rebelled against them from other places in their empire. They removed Israelites, and they brought in others from other lands, and they did that. They, they arranged those deportations of peoples as a means to control them. 2 Kings 17, verses 24 through 28. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthah and from Ava and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim. Here is where we should look for the source of the so-called Sephardic Jews, right? But most of these people from other places in the Assyrian Empire were originally whites from other lands that the also white Assyrians also ruled. This is the Adamic Oikumenate. This is the, 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 the area where the sons of Noah spread across Mesopotamia and the surrounding regions, right? And the Assyrians placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And, and Samaria included many more people than just these at a, latest time, at a later time. However, these people were brought from other places in the Assyrian Empire into Samaria, which was at one time the capital city of the children of Ephraim. So Samaria here doesn't really mean the whole district, but only, only the, um, the capital city. It, it has a different meaning than it had in the time of Christ. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not Yahweh, therefore Yahweh sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Wherefore they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry here one of the priests whom you brought from there. In other words, one of the Israelite priests that had been deported. And let them go and dwell there, and let them teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear Yahweh. So we see that although Yahweh said again and again that he was only the God of Israel, meaning the people, the family, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, men confused genealogy and geography and imagined him to be the God of the land rather than the God of the people. Rather than rectify the misunderstanding, the priest of the captivity evidently went along with it. That same idea existed in the gods of other peoples also. The Greeks built groves for gods and, and demarcated regions that contained temples and considered that land holy and belonging to a particular god or goddess. The Babylonians and the Assyrians did the same thing. The, the Canaanite Phoenicians and, and the Assyrians, they, they all had a bell of their city, a lord of their city, a god who was envisioned to be the deity of their city. And they built temples and worshipped him in that city. These things went on all the time. The same mistake is made today, where people can imagine that their blessings are derived from a land rather than from their God. 
and that those blessings can be shared with anyone else who moves into that land. Today, the same philosophy is called by rather secular names, and, and, and it's called after diversity, immigration, multiculturalism. Here in 2 Kings 17, we have an early example of ecumenism. Ecumenism is a way to make religion palatable for empires, for empirical rule, for imperialism. The idea that all of the world's people can get along and worship the same God and keep that God happy and intermarry and engage in the same religion is an idea man created for the sake of world trade and world empires. And these false religions have nothing to do with the God of Israel. So the idea that the God was attached to a land, we see in, in, in 2 Kings 17 where the Assyrians and, and the Levitical priests went along with it. And, and we also see that Jonah tried to, thought, thought he could flee from God by leaving the land and going to another land. And Jonah was a prophet. That doesn't mean that he was a bearer of the truth. Another similarity between the account of Jonah, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to read one, Jonah 1, 1.4 first. But Yahweh sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried, every man unto his God. There we see it again. And cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay, and he was fast asleep. Another similarity between the account of Jonah and the ministry of Christ. Both Jonah and Christ were able to sleep at sea during a storm, as all the other men on board feared death. I don't think it's a coincidence, but I had to mention it. The passage reflects a typical mercantile multiculturalism. We have had all throughout our history, where we see that there cried every man unto his God. This is not to say that there was multiracialism as we know it today. And although there may well have been some Edomites or Canaanites in the mix, it is certain that these sailors on the ships of Tarshish were white whether or not they were Israelites. By Jonah's time, although priests of Yahweh were functioning in Israel, and Jonah was evidently one of them, as he states in, in the subsequent verses, as we know from archaeology, it is evident from Scripture that Israel had long turned to paganism. From the time of Jeroboam, when the, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom was divided, we see Israel returning to the cult of calf worship. This is evident in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, and I'm going to read the passage. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from there and built Penuel, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam, one, the first king of Israel in the divided kingdom, Rehoboam being the king of Judah. Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people goes up to sacrifice in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king, Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And, and of course, that's a direct correlation to the golden calf incident. And he set the one in Bethel and put the other in Dan, Dan being the northernmost city of Israel proper at that time. And this thing became a sin, but the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan, and he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people. That's always the case which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, and on the fifteenth day of the month, like under the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. 
so did he in Bethel, sacrificing under the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. This is the same pagan calf worship, and this is about 950 B.C., I'm guessing. This is the same pagan calf worship cult that had been in Israel from the days of Egypt, which they took out with them in the Exodus. When we examined early Greek records of Mediterranean settlement in this period, we find bull worship was prevalent among the people who were shown by the historical records to have descended from peoples of Egypt and Palestine who must have been the Israelites. Aside from the Baal worship, which was extant in Israel, as it is recorded in Scripture, there was also the worship of the female idols, Anath and Ashtaroth, and many other pagan idols. There's also the word Adon, which gives us Adonis, and many other correlations. And all these appear in Greek religion in the later records of the Greek poets. They're called all the host of heaven in 2 Kings chapter 17. There's a reason why they're called that. While this is not directly related to Jonah, we see that aside from any sailors who may have been from other ports of call among the Greeks and other pagans, even the Israelites at this time had many different gods. For the most part, as the records attest, Israel, after the division of the kingdom, became a pagan nation, and that's also the state of our people today. Okay, so Jonah was able to sleep on the ship during the storm. Verse 6. So the shipmaster came to him and said to him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, and we perish not. Well, verse 8 indicates that, and, and we haven't read it yet, right? Verse 8 indicates that the men on the ship did not know much about Jonah. Therefore, here it is not necessary that the shipmaster knew much, knew much about Jonah's God. Rather, every man crying out to his own God, it is more likely that the shipmaster wanted to cover all the theological bases. In the Hebrew, the second occurrence of the word for God is accompanied with an article. Therefore, I would translate it without assuming that the shipmaster understood that Jonah was a prophet of Yahweh, the one true God. And I would translate it as follows. So the shipmaster came to him and said to him, What meanest thou, O sleeper, arise, call upon thy God, with a small g, if so be that the God will think upon us, and we perish not. The King James translator is being a little exuberant there. Verse 8 will prove that out. The next verse describes the casting of lots. And, and I have to say, because there are some people that advocate the casting of lots for all kinds of strange things, it must be said that the scripture looks upon the casting of lots as sometimes good and sometimes evil, depending on the purpose for which the lots are cast. Just because the casting of lots appears in scripture doesn't mean it's always good. All things being equal, the casting of lots was performed so that it may be determined which of two goats may die in sacrifice, as we see in Leviticus chapter 16. Lots were used to determine the division of land in the book of Joshua. Lots were used to determine the courses of priests when a tribe of Aaron grew too large for all of them to work in the temple at once. But it didn't really matter where the lot fell. All other things being equal, you got your turn on any particular month. Yet, as it can be seen in Joel 3.3 and in Obadiah 1.11, the casting of lots was also undertaken for evil purposes and even for gambling. Like any other tool, the casting of lots may be used for good or for evil. Here in Jonah, it is clear that the casting of lots worked into the plan of God, but that doesn't mean that we should employ such a method for all of our life's decisions. Verse 7 
And they said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is this evil upon us? What is your occupation? And from where do you come? What is your country? And what people are you of? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, which has made the sea and the dry land. Rendering the name Yahweh here as Lord would make absolutely no sense in the context of the discourse, since even Baal is a Hebrew word which means Lord. Here there are many lords and many gods, and each man apparently had a different god in this multicultural setting. Here it is evident that the men did not even know Jonah from his dress or from his language. At the time, Akkadian, the language of the Assyrians, was the lingua franca of trade and diplomacy. Herodotus, who wrote 300 years after Jonah, spoke of the Greeks' familiarity with what he called Assyrian letters and the Greeks' ability to read them although several other languages had also been written in cuneiform in ancient times, that Akkadian was the diplomatic language of the Near East is evident in many inscriptions dating all the way back to the Armana period in ancient Egypt, where Akkadian inscriptions indicating as much were also found. Akkadian remained the lingua franca, or the language of trade and diplomacy, throughout the East, until the fall of Nineveh circa 612 B.C., so it was for over 600 years, when at that time it was supplanted with Aramaic. Jonah clearly had an ability to communicate with both these men and later on with the Assyrians in Nineveh. Verse 10. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do with you that the sea may be calm to us? For the sea is wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm for you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Here Jonah is commended, he, he is to be commended, in caring more for justice than for his own life. For he knew that if the men on the ship had suffered any injustice, it would have been due to him. Part of the lesson in Jonah is that if God wants us to do something, there is no way that we are going to escape it. Trying to escape God's plans for us, we only make things harder for ourselves. This is also the lesson in Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, that although he would rather not have undergone what he did, he knew that it had to be so, and so he exclaimed that he would surrender to whatever was God's will. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea was wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore, they cried unto Yahweh and said, We beseech thee, O Yahweh, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. In other words, they didn't want to throw Jonah overboard. For you, O Yahweh, has done as it pleased you. They didn't want to throw Jonah overboard, even though Jonah asked the men to throw him overboard. They didn't want to be responsible for his death, and they made every effort that they could to get him to land before they finally relented, and we see that in verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto Yahweh and made vows. Now Yahweh had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
as Matthew 12.40, reads where Christ attests, For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, thusly shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. I have been asked whether Jonah was really swallowed by a whale, as if I could possibly know any more than what the writings plainly say. The scripture says it was a whale. The Greek word is katos, and it's a whale, or a large sea animal, a very large sea animal. In Matthew 1240, Christ says that it was a whale, a katos. The Greek is plain and literally says that it was a whale. And that Jonah was in the whale for three days and three nights. Whales can grow very large. For example, a baleen whale, a filter feeder, which generally eats plankton, is up to 110 feet long and can grow over 400,000 pounds. And those whales were known to the Greeks. They were described by Aristotle. Some people, as I have witnessed, want to imagine that this is not a whale, but it was some sort of high-tech spacecraft or submarine that the angels of God used to fetch Jonah. I'm not even going to argue that, since I was not there to see it. However, this was done, plainly I accept that it happened in one way or another, and I am not going to dispute the words of Christ. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto Yahweh his God out of the fish's belly. And he said, I cried my reason of mine affliction unto Yahweh. And he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I. And you heard my voice. For you has cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas. And the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depths closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth, with her bars, was about me forever. Yet cast thou brought up my life from corruption. I'm sorry, son. Yet hast Thou brought up my life from corruption. O Yahweh, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They did observe lying vanities, forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of Yahweh, and Yahweh spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Of course, this prayer must represent Jonah's thoughts over the course of three days. And we see that even in our darkest hour, we may find repentance and deliverance. We sure as hell need it. Jonah repented of his actions only when he faced certain death. And even though it was his own disobedience which led him to that death, from that he was nevertheless delivered. We as a people seem to be in Jonah's position today, swallowed up by beasts because we have not obeyed our God. We too must pray for that repentance and deliverance. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of Yahweh came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it, the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Mesopotamia is properly the land between the rivers, meaning the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. Today it roughly corresponds with modern Iraq, not exactly. Nineveh, was on the east bank of the Euphrates River, and therefore it was just east of Mesopotamia. It was far upstream from the Persian Gulf. The story of Jonah is often challenged with the contention that no whale could have swam from the Mediterranean 
to the Persian Gulf in three days. Perhaps with the canal in Egypt. But the text does not state that the whale swam that far. Neither does it say that the whale spat Jonah up necessarily in the Persian Gulf or even near Nineveh itself. The phrase three days journey described the size of the city, not the distance from where Jonah was spat up to the city. Wherever Jonah was spat up, he, as the text says, arose and went to Nineveh. And it may have even taken him some weeks to get there. We don't really know. The text, the text simply does not tell us much, and most of what is commonly perceived is read into the text. It's really only conjectured. Once Jonah arrived in Nineveh, only then he saw that it was an exceeding great city of three days' journey, and it was a large and ancient city. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, so we see that he did not get halfway through it. We, we see there what it means by three days' journey, that it's talking about the size of the city. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. It is evident all throughout Scripture that the messages of the prophets, as they were recorded, were often actually more complex than our records indicate, and that they were often only recorded in summary. Many commentators, nevertheless, like to cite what they call Jonah's eight-word sermon, believing that it really was only eight words. However, it would take much more than those eight words to gain such a reaction as Jonah did from the Assyrian king who is already at the head of a great empire at this very time. Surely Jonah's eight-word sermon was only the summary of the message which he had for them. Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yeah, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? The king of Assyria, once he heard Jonah's warning, evidently took it to heart and issued a proclamation demanding that his entire kingdom repent from any and all wickedness. We see that the proclamation of the king was made for both man and beast and also for herds and flocks. It was also commanded that both man and beast wear sackcloth as a sign of repentance. These are general statements indicative of the gravity of the situation and the importance of the king's order. That no matter your station or position in the empire, you would better heed the king's order. As the historian Herodotus and other historians often relate, in Mesopotamia, transgression against authority was treated very seriously and justice was dispensed very harshly. Citizens who crossed their rulers often lost their noses and ears and were released back into society in disgrace. Crucifixion was a common form of execution. If a man betrayed his nation, quite often his entire village and all of his kin were exterminated in vengeance. Therefore, such proclamations as this by the king were indeed taken very seriously. While it cannot be proven that the king of Assyria distinguished a Damic man in his empire from, as many claim, 
non-Adamic or mixed racial lineage people who would be called beasts, it can't be proven what was in the king of Assyria's mind when he made this statement, that man and beast wear sackcloth. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one whit. Neither does it really matter, as some would assert, that beasts could repent. What does matter, and, and they're trying to make an ecumenical Christianity out of, a, out, out of an assertion by an Assyrian, out of a declaration by an Assyrian king, which is absolutely ridiculous. What does matter is that the people of the land are not tempted into sin, and therefore everyone in the land must follow the same laws. For this reason, Yahweh commanded that even the strangers in Israel must obey the Sabbath. And I will read Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, where it says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughters, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, not thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Now, of course, this does not mean that the cattle or the stranger are under the covenants. It does not mean that the promises of God and the relationship God has with the children of Israel are extended to the cattle and the stranger. That reading would be ridiculous. It does not mean that the cattle or the stranger are going to somehow be saved and go to heaven because they were compelled to obey the Sabbath. Rather, it only assures that the children of Israel would not be tempted into defiling the Sabbath if aliens were permitted to work within their environs and their habitations. It is quite certain that most of the people of the Assyrian Empire, and especially the people of Assyria itself, were indeed white Adamic people. For they sprung from Asher, the son of Shem, who was the brother of Arphaxad, who was the ancestor of the sons of Aram and Eber, the Hebrews, the original white Syrians and Hebrews. However, there was a population of Hittites and Amorites and others of mixed Kenite and Canaanite peoples living within the bounds of the empire, and certainly also in its capital city. Whether you want to think that beast, the word beast in Jonah, where the king of Assyria insists that man and beast wear sackcloth and repent, whether you want to think that the word beast applies to beasts of burden or to Hittites and other Canaanites, doesn't matter. A certain universalist so-called pastor recently made the assertion that because beasts were ordered to repent of their sin by the king of Assyria, that means that at the end of days, the beasts would be judged by God based upon their good or bad behavior and rewarded accordingly in his kingdom. Yet those promises are not made to beasts anywhere in Scripture, but only to our Adamic race. Such thinking, or total lack of thinking, on the part of the universalist is absolutely disgraceful and betrays a motive which is absolutely contrary to Scripture and it's absolutely contrary to our national well-being. We must be careful when we create doctrines from Scripture to assess not only what is being spoken, but also who the speaker is, what the context is, and who it is being spoken to. The Bible contains both the words and the ideas of men, as we see here, a declaration of the king of Assyria, and it contains the word and intentions of God. We must be able to divide the word correctly. If there's sin in your land, no matter who is in the land, they must cease from the sin. Jonah 3, verse 10. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he had said that he would do to them, and he did it not. Now, we don't know what he said that he would do to them, except that Nineveh would be destroyed, right? That's it, Jonah's eight-word declaration. Jonah must have had a greater promise than that, as we'll see in chapter 4. To further address the heresy that somehow Yahweh cares for the non-Adamic or mixed races or beasts, where it says that God saw their works, 
can it be imagined that God cares for the works of the beasts? Or does he care for the men of Nineveh? Yahshua Christ, immediately after his statement concerning Jonah in Matthew 12.40, said at Matthew 12.41, that the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this race, meaning the, the, the people of Judea, and they shall condemn it. They will condemn that race because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Christ did not say that the men and the beasts of Nineveh would rise up in the judgment. He only said that the men of Nineveh would rise up in the judgment. As Paul describes at great length in Romans chapter 5, the entire scope of our fall and our restoration has nothing to do with beasts, but only with the race of Adam. Here I will quote from the King James Version so that I am not accused of any contrivances. Romans 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as one man's sin, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then Paul makes a parenthetical statement. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Yahshua Christ, has abounded unto many, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. For if by one man's offense, meaning Adam, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Yahshua Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, meaning the sin of Adam, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men, all men, all Adamic men, unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Paul is counting these people from Adam to Moses, meaning the people before the Levitical law, and he doesn't count anybody else. The other races cannot be included in this. Only the Adamic race can by any means be included in this. All men from Adam to Moses, and then we have the relationship of Yahweh with Israel, which is separate and above the Adamic covenants and the promises to restoration of the entire Adamic race. And here we saw the words of Christ, that the men of Nineveh would arise in judgment, not the beasts. Moreover, the law rented that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Yahshua Christ our Lord. It is not only foolish that we teach non, that non-Adamic peoples are going to be brought into the relationship between Adamic man and Yahweh our God. It is downright malicious. It is criminal, and therefore it must be addressed. The men of Nineveh repented. All of the people in Assyria, in Nineveh, were told to cease from their wickedness, because otherwise, if all the people of Assyria don't cease from their wickedness, the men of Nineveh would be tempted not to cease from their wickedness. That is why the commandment to rest on the Sabbath, as we see in Leviticus chapter 20, also covers the cattle and the aliens so that you don't get around the law by hiring a Gentile to do your work for you. That's a stab at the, the Jews and their Shabbos goyim, which is 
absolute proof that, that all of their interpretations of the law are only to defy the law. We're told that we should keep the Sabbath, and we're told that we should not allow aliens among us to break the Sabbath so that we aren't tempted to break the Sabbath. The men of Nineveh were told to repent, and they were told that the beasts among them better also repent so that they wouldn't be tempted into not repenting and continuing in sin. When Yahweh looked upon the men and forgave Nineveh and forestalled his judgment against Nineveh, it was because the men of Nineveh repented. What the beasts did doesn't matter. Rightly divide the word of truth. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry, and he prayed unto Yahweh and said, I pray to you, Yahweh, was this not my saying? Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art the gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and great of kindness, and repentest thee of evil. Therefore now, O Yahweh, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Then said Yahweh, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah was angry, saying that Yahweh did not destroy Nineveh. However, there's some history which must be understood to understand why this was so. Why was Jonah angry that Nineveh would not be destroyed. It is evident from his mention in 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah the prophet, as we've already discussed, conducted his ministry sometime in the later part of the 9th century to the early part of the 8th century B.C. It is during this very time that Assyria, having arisen as a great empire, began to threaten the existence of Israel and Judah as sovereign states. The rise of Assyria was a long time coming. The ancient Hittite Empire, and before that the old Babylonian Empire, the Empire of Cush, dominated Assyria, and the Assyrians were subject to them for, for centuries. The ancient Hittite Empire met its decline in the 15th century B.C. The Mitanni kingdom, based in ancient Padanaram, the ancient homeland of Abraham, and northern Mesopotamia, dominated the area for the next 200 years after the fall of the Hittite Empire. The Mitanni kingdom is commonly described as having had Indo-Aryan rulers with the Hurrian or Horite, which is Canaanite, underclass. And it did, and for that reason, it couldn't stay together. It struggled between the Hittites to the west and the Assyrians to the east. And eventually, it succumbed to the Assyrians. In the 14th century BC, Tiglath-Pileser made a mili made Tiglath-Pileser one made military expeditions which reached the Mediterranean, Lebanon, and Syria. In the middle of the 9th century B.C., maybe about 50 years before Jonah's time, Shalmaneser III began to subject the Syrians to Assyrian control. Adad Merari III reached northern Palestine around the turn into the 8th century B.C., very probably around the time of Jonah. Jonah must have seen all this. He must have known all this. Of course, right after the days of Jonah, the Assyrians took all of Syria and then Israel from the time of Tiglath-Pileser III, beginning around 741 B.C. So Assyria is threatening Israel during the time of Jonah. There are many extant ancient tablets and inscriptions documenting all of this. Jonah, of course, would have loved to have seen Yahweh prevent the inevitable Assyrian conquest of his beloved homeland, since the intent of Assyria 
must have been evident in his own time. That is the only reason why Jonah could have been angry that Yahweh forgave and did not destroy Nineveh. Jonah not knowing what God's plan was for the children of Israel. Jonah 4, verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow so he might see what would become of the city, Nineveh. And Yahweh God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did rise, that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished in himself to die. And he said, It is better for me to die than to live. And Yahweh God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said Yahweh, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither made it to grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six, six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. There were, right here, according to Jonah, and then according to God in the book of Jonah, there were in Nineveh 120,000 people who knew not the difference between what was good and what was evil. They didn't have the Hebrew law. They didn't have the things that the Israelites were given. They did have a, a society based on the rule of law, but it wasn't the... Um, the moral laws of God. As Paul said in Acts chapter 17, speaking to the Jephthite Ionians, Yahweh made from one, meaning Adam, every Genesis 10 nation, every nation of Adamic men to dwell upon all the face of the earth, appointing the times ordained in the boundaries of their settlements to seek God, if surely then they would seek after him, then they would find him. And indeed, he being not far from each one of us. Of course, most of our race never sought, never sought God. We follow paganism and lasciviousness and licentiousness and drunken revelry and sex with strangers. We still do. The same thing that applied to the Jephthite Ionians would also have applied to the Shemite Assyrians. Assyria is indeed the gourd that sheltered Jonah and then withered. Likewise, Yahweh caused the Assyrians to deport nearly all of Israel and Judah. So the gourd is a type for Nineveh itself. The Assyrians deported all of Israel and Judah, or, or all of most of Israel and most of Judah, settling them in lands to the north for their own good, as Yahweh says in Scripture. Not long after Assyria accomplished this, and just like the gourd itself, the Assyrians also withered. It was the Scythian descendants of those same deported Israelites, this is when the Scythians appear in history, who in league with the Jephthite Medes and the Shemitic Chaldeans of Babylon, the Chaldeans were Shemites, they were from Aram. In 612 B.C. destroyed Nineveh and the other notable cities of the Assyrians. So all of this worked into Yahweh's greater design and serves as a lesson for us today, if we indeed understand the history that coincides with the scripture. Why did the Assyrians believe Jonah? I discussed this on an open forum program a few months ago, so I just stole the notes from there. The Bible tells us that Jonah 
a man was caught in the belly of a great fish, and he was delivered, where he later went to Nineveh, where he preached repentance to the Assyrians, and they believed him, and they repented of their sin in sackcloth. This was just a short time before Nineveh was to be destroyed, according to the book of Jonah itself. And of course, Nineveh repented. And it wasn't destroyed. What the Bible does not tell us, however, is why the Ninevites should have believed Jonah. Or even whether witnesses had seen him ejected from the fish, but why else would the Assyrians believe this man? Maybe here we will find out just how much the Bible can come to life when we understand a little bit of ancient history. And, and let me say that the, the destruction of Nineveh, you know, people might think, well, how is Nineveh going to be destroyed? But at this time, and it's, it's noticeable in the inscriptions, they were at war with the Syrians. The Syrians could have won. The Assyrians prevailed. The following paragraph is from Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, Book 2, Chapter 4, from the Loeb Classical Library Edition, published by Harvard. Now there is in Syria a city known as Ascalon, and not far from it, a large and deep lake full of fish. Let me say that Ashkelon, Syria, and, and um, the Israelite part of Palestine were confused by the Greeks. Herodotus called the people of Jerusalem the Syrians of Palestine three times in his histories. On its shore is a precinct of a famous goddess whom the Syrians call Derketo. And this goddess has the head of a woman but all the rest of her body is that of a fish. The reason being something like this. The story, as given by the most learned of the inhabitants of the region, is as follows. Aphrodite, being offended with this goddess, inspired in her a violent passion for a certain handsome youth among her votaries. And Derketo gave herself to the Syrian and bore a daughter. But then, filled with shame of her sinful deed, she killed the youth and exposed the child in a rocky desert region. While as for herself, from shame and grief, she threw herself into the lake and was changed as to the form of her body into a fish. And it is for this reason that the Syrians to this day abstain from this animal and honor their fish as gods. But about the region where the babe was exposed... A great multitude of doves had their nests, and by them the child was nurtured in an astounding and a miraculous manner. For some of the doves kept the body of the babe warm on all sides by covering it with their wings, while others, when they observed that the cowherds and the other keepers were absent from the nearby steadings, brought milk therefrom in their beaks and fed the babe by putting it drop by drop between its lips. And when a child was a year old and in need of more solid nourishment, the doves, pecking off bits from the cheeses, yes, Theodore Siculus wrote this, had been nibbled about the edges. I'm sorry. Picking off bits from the cheeses supplied it with sufficient nourishment, meaning the child. Now when the keepers returned and saw that the cheeses had been nibbled about the edges, they were astonished at the strange happening. They accordingly kept a lookout, and on discovering the cause, found the infant which was of surpassing beauty. At once then bringing it to their steadings, they, named it, they turned it over to the keeper of the royal herds, whose name was Simus. And Simus, being childless, gave every care to the rearing of the girl as his own daughter, and called her name Semiramis. A name slightly altered from the word which in the language of the Syrians means doves. Birds which since that time all the inhabitants of Syria have continued to honor as goddesses. 
So the tradition reported by Diodorus Siculus, and he's only reporting what the Assyrians believed and what he heard of, of one of their own pagan religions. The Assyrians worshipped Semiramis, and so did the Assyrians, and we know that from Assyrian tablets, but Semiramis was actually a living Assyrian king. Uh, I'm sorry, queen. Her name was Shamu Ramat. She lived in the middle of the 9th century. She lived about 50 years before Jonah. Semiramis, and, and, and Diodorus Siculus is writing in the 1st century, Semiramis basically came out of a fish, according to the legend. Her mother, Durketo, was turned into a fish. And then Semiramis was said to have been nurtured by doves. The word dove in Hebrew, Strong's number 3123 and 3124, is the name Jonah. Jonah means dove. So Jonah means dove in Hebrew. And the Assyrians spoke a very close Semitic language to Hebrew. They would have understood Jonah. Therefore, Jonah was a dove that came out of a fish. And that's what it was believed of their goddess Semiramis. She was nurtured by doves and came from a fish. So here, I believe, that even in our folly, God speaks to men on their own terms and sort of makes fun of us in the process. Who thinks that Yahweh our God has no sense of humor? So we have it in the story of Jonah. Thank you for listening tonight. I will be back tomorrow, and the program will be a little longer tomorrow. I, I only had so much material in the book of Jonah, right? I'll be back tomorrow with an exposition of my essay on the Phoenicians and, and the identity of the Phoenicians with the children of Israel. There's no doubt. May Yahweh bless you all. Good night.